Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, happy weekend to you. So I haven't really talked a whole lot to this week because I had a whole lot of local stuff to talk about that I haven't really dived into the latest GOP presidential primary debate. And honestly, if I'm being truthful with you, I probably paid too much attention to it in the first place. You've seen the polling. I've seen the polling. We all know who the GOP nominee is set to be, if that's allowed, when the nomination is doled out at their convention next summer, you know, because he has other things to deal with, maybe. Uh, Nonetheless, it's entertainment when we lack entertainment. Uh, The SAG-AFTRA strike, the writer's strike, has left us without a whole lot of good television. You've seen sporting events on major networks the last six to nine months or so that wouldn't have before been on major networks. I have seen college basketball games in prime time on Fox. I didn't even know Fox had college basketball contracts before, and all of a sudden they do. Well, the truth is they have another network called FS1 that usually would air these, I'm sorry, inconsequential basketball games. And listen, it's got nothing to do with the schools or what even part of the country they represent or what conference they're in. It's December. There are no consequential basketball games in the college sport in December. I mean, they're fun to watch. It's nice to see Kansas take on Duke in November or December, but they're, it's not consequential. It, it might be come March when resumes are being weighed against one another, but they're not consequential. But they're on Fox. What was it? Providence. I think that's a Providence on Prime. I guess my point is there's not a lot of good stuff to watch on television right now. So sometimes we go, hey, these uh, knuckleheads in the GOP are all getting on stage and fighting with each other. Let's watch that. Hell yeah. I'm all about that. And you know who else is all about that and knows we're all about it? Vivek Ramaswamy. But while his star sort of rose to uh, the occasion for a little bit, he sort of triggered that same impulse, scratched that itch that a lot of us were like, oh, I got to watch that debate because Donald Trump is just going to be entertaining. He was very entertaining in 2016. So entertaining that folks got drawn in and thought, you know what, why not? Let's let's give this crackpot a shot here. <laughs> and lo and behold, there were enough of y'all that gave him a shot, and then he had a shot for four years, and I mean, nothing came of it other than a, a pandemic and the embarrassment of, uh, you know, being being talked into uh, bleaching our, our sphincters and, and things of that like, uh, an economic calamity and uh, distancing ourselves with our NATO allies, giving an opportunity for Vladimir Putin to wedge himself in and then go take on Ukraine. And, you know, just, but other than that, it was just swimming. So Vivek, knowing that folks like to be entertained, knowing that in order to find his way somehow either into the Oval Office or to be deigned to be Trump's running mate, had to stand out. And he has, he stood out and he's picked fights with specifically Nikki Haley. It's just interesting to to watch as those two spar. Um, and there's been the allegation that he has a woman problem. He has made a lot of noise about uh, Nikki Haley playing the heels card. I don't want to say the woman card, but she does like to talk about the heels she wears. And there's some, uh, you know, alluding to that every time Vivek has the opportunity to. 
and then of course he went in on Nikki Haley having a daughter who was on TikTok. He, by the way, is on TikTok. Uh, as they were debating whether or not TikTok should be banned in the country, just funny stuff. This is entertaining, right? Uh, folks can laugh or, or mock those of us who watch these debates, but dude, it's popcorn watching, uh, popcorn inducing, you know, sort of entertainment. And while I did not watch, in fact. I know I get News Nation, but I don't know where on YouTube TV it is. It's, it's it's there somewhere. I didn't watch, but I do love watching the clips after the fact. And remember, or maybe you don't remember, but I'll, I'll remind you or I'll tell you if you're just joining the show or, or kind of following along for the first time in a few weeks. I knew from the outset when Chris Christie decided he was going to run for president, this was going to be good to watch. Chris Christie is, first of all, fast on his feet. Don't look it. But I mean rhetorically, not physically. And that's not a fat joke. He'll, he'll be the first to tell you he's not a fast guy. Uh, anyway, Chris Christie thinks quickly on his feet. And I know he's been working on the quips and the one-liners and getting better and better at them. And I'm not saying that that's going to translate into Chris Christie becoming a serious nominee. Because again, Donald Trump is getting 55, 58, 59% of those being polled in the early states or in on the whole, within the GOP electorate. But Chris Christie, to me, is the singular most dangerous foil still in the GOP presidential primary. And while he can't solely take down Donald Trump right now, I think he's whittling away at who I thought was going to be the likely Trump running mate. This, back and forth from a couple nights ago at the fourth GOP primary debate is worth listening in on. Take a listen to this. Okay, you say this, you, you do this, you do this at every money. debate. You go out on the stump and you say something, all of us see it on video, we confront you on the debate stage, you say you didn't say it, and then you back away. And I want to say exactly no, what I said, Chris. I'm not I'm done yet. Well, this now is... Now look, this is... This man is This is the fourth debate. The fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. Mm. So shut up for a while. We're the audience now. I want to say something else. We're now 25 minutes into this debate, and he has insulted Nikki Haley's basic intelligence, not her positions. Her basic intelligence, she doesn't know regions. She wouldn't be able to find something on a map that his three-year-old could find. Look, if you want to disagree on issues, that's fine. And Nikki and I disagree on some issues. But I'll tell you this, I've known her for 12 years, which is longer than he's even started to vote in a Republican primary. Boom. And while we disagree about some issues and we disagree about who should be president of the United States, what we don't disagree on is this is a smart, accomplished woman and you should stop insulting so her. So I'm going to take this I'm going to take several times over. So first of all, I think we just learned... So I think what we're learning, to uh, steal the line from Vivek, is that the establishment is trying to figure out how to take down the MAGA wing of their own party. And they can't get the whole tree down without at first lopping off some of the tiny little spindly branches. And Vivek is a tiny little spindly branch. Afterwards in the spin room of this debate, Megan Kelly got to speak one-on-one with Chris Christie to find out what happened, dude. You just kind of snapped at Vivek. 
And I think Vivek does have a woman problem. I do think he insults women's basic intelligence. He's done it over and over and over again. And I guess tonight, I just had had enough. I had enough of listening to his garbage. And as I said, his smart-ass Harvard mouth, because that's what it is. When he's dictating to me and Nikki Haley, who have committed ourselves to public service, while he's been off stealing from seniors to make his fortune, yeah, I'm not going to put up with him anymore. Could this be the beginning, maybe, of a coalescing of two candidates to form a potential ticket option neither are polling well enough in fact nobody combined (laughs) that's left on the dais is polling well enough to take down donald trump however if you start making the argument to the gop voter that a coalition ticket of a chris christie and nikki haley or sorry she's ahead of him polling wise a nikki haley and chris christie ticket and you start showing your establishment base and can start chipping away at some of those wavering MAGAs who uh, might be concerned. In fact, we've seen polling here in Georgia that shows that a lot of potential GOP voter peels off the minute Donald Trump is found guilty of any of the number of indictments that he has levied against him. Maybe you start to see the seeds being planted right now for that. Hey, listen, you've got this you would say, they would say, accomplished governor from South Carolina and this accomplished governor from New Jersey, and wouldn't they make a... T- and I've... Some people call it my pessimism. I have said all along from the day Nikki Haley announced, she is a problem for a Joe Biden re-election campaign. I even said when Chris Christie announced that he was running, that first of all, he is a weapon to derail a second Donald Trump presidential term. And I'm not saying I'm right, but I am saying that these two weapons are sort of lining up to take on their targets. And by joining forces, they may be able to hit both of them. And and listen, this isn't just what I'm seeing from Nikki Haley uh, and Chris Christie, but I'm also seeing it from the establishment right-wing news source, Fox News, who spent all day yesterday, for the most part, burying the Vivek Ramaswamy uh, option, which again, you remove him, you delegitimize, you defang him. He becomes less of an option for a potential running mate with Donald Trump. Listen to this back and forth with Laura Ingraham and the handsome Laura Ingraham and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy on Fox News last night. Yeah, we're almost out of time. But Vivek, given where things are in the polls and you're and you pitched yourself as a realist and a common sense conservative, and I think quite Uh, effectively, just rhetorically and and substantively. But you're trailing uh, DeSantis, Trump, and Nikki Haley. So I think her question to you right now would be, why don't you drop out? Mm. Like, she should drop out. Why don't you drop out and endorse Trump? I mean, this was... This is different six weeks ago. My view is this. I'm also a very practical person, Laura. I'm talking to you from northern Iowa, where I came from Alabama earlier. One of the things we're seeing on the ground in Iowa, and this is practical reality is many of my supporters are not traditional caucus goers. They're people who may come wearing Ron Paul shirts, many people on college campuses and otherwise. Mm -hmm. These people are not polled. If you come to the events, we've had three events today. These are crowd sizes that exceed what the mainstream media would tell you we're experiencing. I've been to the caucuses. I can't even count how many Iowa caucuses I've been to. So you're saying tonight that there's going to be a groundswell of support for you at the Iowa yes. caucuses, there's going to be a groundswell and that's going to I'm propel ex- you to a first or second place finish. 
it's going to shatter the expectations. I think we're going to shatter the expectations that have been set for us. Sure, Jan. And then you have this little interesting nugget that dropped a couple of days ago. Uh, Catherine Watson from CBS News reporting that President Joe Biden Tuesday said he's not even sure he'd be running for re-election if former President Donald Trump were not also running. If Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running, he said, but we cannot let him win. This at a fundraising event, uh, I believe, in Boston, and uh, according to CBS News, no television cameras or microphones were allowed inside the event, but reporters traveling with the president were able to report on his comments. Again, according to Catherine Watson with CBS News, a Biden campaign official told CBS News that the president's advisors viewed his statements as a continuation of the same things they've been highlighting in recent weeks, that the stakes of the election are very real, that the election is bigger than any individual candidate, and that democracy itself is at stake. I point all this out to you just to say that while it's a presumption that it'll be Trump v. Biden again 11 months from now, maybe not. All right, take a quick break. Back after this, The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show, your Friday weekend edition. And by the way, happy Hanukkah to our Jewish listeners and friends throughout the state of Georgia, Metro Atlanta, the United States, and abroad. Obviously, uh, this Hanukkah season, unique given the strife in Israel and its fight against Hamas. We're heading into a a religious holiday season where folks of the Jewish faith, the Islamic faith, the Christian faith, all all have holidays to celebrate. And thankfully, we don't have to have that debate this year, it seems, about whether or not to say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. I love saying Happy Holidays, one, because I'm lazy. It covers them all. (laughs) But also because it's just inclusive. Um, So we were talking a little bit about uh, the potential of a joining of the minds on a potential alternative ticket for the GOP establishment. Nikki Haley, Chris Christie. And, and again, I, I'm just going to sit here and tell you, and you can listen back. I couldn't tell you dates, but you can listen back to past episodes of The Ron Show anywhere you'd like, by the way, on any podcast platform or at The Ron Show's website, ronshowatl.com. And when Nikki Haley announced, I was hand-wringing them. Like, oh, she's... Uh, She's got uh, some bona fides, some credentials that could be a problem if uh, a Joe Biden re-election campaign with uh, a Biden-Harris ticket has to take on Nikki Haley and someone credible. And then you got Chris Christie, who, again, when he announced, I said, first of all, he's going to be a problem for Donald Trump because he is the one more forcefully speaking against Donald Trump, not scared of the blowback. I don't know what those two have, but for whatever reason, Chris Christie's got something on Donald Trump that uh, he knows he can just run his mouth, say what he will about Donald Trump, and there's not a whole lot that Trump can do about it. So in talking about this uh, alliance, potential alliance, and again, I don't know anything. I don't know anybody inside either camp. Have you heard me? Um, (laughs) I mean, I lived in South Carolina for 11 years, but I don't know any Nikki Haley people. Uh, I would say this, though. When you look at the potential for that tandem coming together as a viable alternative for GOP voters heading into the primary season, and again, not one vote has been cast yet. Iowa caucuses are are still like a month out, right? There's still time for some coalescing. And of course, most people don't even pick their vice presidential running mate until they're about to get the nomination. But what if those two minds did come together? You have to start thinking then, well, then what is Donald Trump going to do to combat that? And that's why for me, it's like interesting to see how a lot of establishment voices, Nikki Haley from the outset has not liked Vivek and she has good reason. He's been kind of a douche to her. Uh, and Chris Christie joined in and, and calling out Vivek's churlishness for what it is. 
but it's hard to ignore that churlessness won over a lot of GOP voters in 2016, and that netted them a return to the same in 2020. Didn't work out so well for them. So who does Donald Trump turn to? Well, again, I, I think you're seeing a movement afoot to eliminate one option. That's an easy option to eliminate because he's showing up on the dais for these debates and he, he's easy to dress down and he asks for it. He's just asking for it. So Vivek to me is out. Uh, I'm going to follow an article that was uh, written a few days ago at thehill.com that talks about Donald Trump's potential running mates. And you work this along with me mentally and say, does this person bring anybody else to vote for him? And they rank these from most likely to least likely. The, the most likely, they say, Christy Noem, South Dakota Governor Christy Noem, who just looks like the, the, the casting room outside of Fox News <laughs> producer's office. Pretty lady. Uh, they write, Noem, for some time, has been seen as a favorite to be Trump's next running mate. She's made clear she would be interested in the job, and she is one of the rare potential picks who Trump has publicly acknowledged would be on his list of potential candidates. She passed the loyalty test, which is, of course, key for Trump and his voting base. She already endorsed him in 2024. Uh, the 52-year-old's gender and relative youth would also bring balance to the ticket alongside the 77-year-old Trump. Uh, here's the thing, though. Uh, as The Hill points out, she doesn't represent a swing state. That could be a strike. And she's been advised by Corey Lewandowski, a longtime member of Trump's orbit, who has at times generated some controversy. So who would be next in line? According to The Hill, they think Tim Scott. I think Tim not. I really do. I just, I don't, I don't see that happening. But uh, they make some points here. Scott is 58, well-respected in the Senate, and his presidential candidate's uh, candidacy featured few direct attacks against Trump. That is true. The former president, in turn, notably held his fire against Scott, the lone black Republican in the Senate. Scott has proven to be a strong fundraiser. When he dropped out in 2024 race in November, Scott declined to endorse another candidate. And you know that that doesn't make Don happy. Uh, and he appeared to shut down the possibility of joining the ticket as vice president, saying, being vice president has never been on my to-do list for this campaign, and it's certainly not there now. Okay. So if it's not going to be Christy Noem or it's not going to be Tim Scott, who would be next? How about Congresswoman Elise Stefanik from New York? Interesting. She comes from a state that Trump wouldn't be picking up. Or would he? And would her on the ticket? I don't think so. There's just not enough uh, swing voter, right-wing voter combos in New York to make this happen. But The Hill ranks her as third. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. All right, you know what? I'm not even going to read any further about her because she is scandal-plagued already. Uh, what about Representative Byron Donalds from Florida? Here we go. Another black male that could be enjoined with Donald Trump on this ticket. Uh, Donalds, they say, is a fast-rising star in the House GOP who earlier this week expressed openness to the idea of running alongside Trump, saying, if that's something that's open to me, would I do that? Yeah, I would because I want to do everything possible to help get our country on track. Because despite our political disagreements in America, we are the best country in the world. It ain't close. You go further down, ah, here the hill goes, Nikki Haley. I don't even need to read beyond that, because there's been enough said already from Nikki Haley's mouth to Donald Trump's past and Donald Trump through Vivek Ramaswamy about Nikki Haley. And make no mistake, that's what that is. 
that I just don't see the two of them coming together. The Hill goes on to mention former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I don't see that happening. Vivek Ramaswamy then at the very bottom. Interestingly enough, the very bottom. Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm actually surprised she's not higher up the list. But you know what? Ever since Kevin McCarthy was bounced from the Speaker's role, she too has been a bit detoothed in the House of Representatives. She doesn't have the sway over Mike Johnson that she had over Kevin McCarthy. She comes from a swing state. We believe we are a swing state. But she's so unpopular throughout the rest of the state outside of her district. Does that really hold any sway as well? Anyway, just some names to consider. I'll share this link from the Hill for you in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. The one Palestinian American serving in the Georgia General Assembly went to the floor with an impassioned speech on why she wasn't going to vote for a fairly useless resolution supporting Israel in its fight against Hamas. We'll give you that speech when the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. This is the Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, let's dive into Israel, Hamas, Gaza, Palestine, all the nastiness going on half a world away. Because I think it'll have domestic impact. Uh, I think we're already starting to see uh, what we have for quite a while now, starting to see a lot of pushback from the far left and uh, notably the younger voter in question that candidates on the left are going to need to show up in November 2024 to create a blue wave, to make a lasting impact at the state, local, state, and federal level. And of course, we do have something called a presidential election coming out. Um, So yesterday, this from PBS. There is a heightened risk of atrocity crimes. In Geneva today, the UN's human rights chief, Volker Turk, described the situation in Gaza as apocalyptic. Some 1.9 million out of the 2.2 million Palestinians have been displaced and are being pushed into ever-diminishing and extremely overcrowded places in southern Gaza in unsanitary and unhealthy conditions. And humanitarian aid is again virtually cut off as fears of widespread disease and hunger spread. Then today, reading from CNBC.com, the Biden administration issued its strongest criticism yet of Israel's military campaign in Gaza for its civilian death toll as the Israel-Hamas war hits the two-month mark. Secretary of State Antony Blinken stressed the U.S. concerns for the protection of civilians in the besieged enclave where local health authorities say that more than 16,000 people have been killed in Israeli attacks. Blinken saying, we are focused on the imperative of maximizing efforts to protect civilians and get not only assistance in, but to sustain the highest level of assistance that was reached during the humanitarian pause and actually build on it. And what we've seen over the initial days is some important additional steps in the direction of doing just that. Having said that, he added, as we stand here almost a week into this campaign in the South after the end of the humanitarian pause, it remains imperative that Israel put a premium on civilian protection. And there does remain a gap between exactly what I said when I was there, the intent to protect civilians, and the actual results that we're seeing on the ground. All that to say that, and I'll pivot to Reuters, the United States on Friday vetoed a United Nations Security Council demand for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the war between Israel and Palestinian militant group Hamas in Gaza, diplomatically isolating Washington as it shields its ally. 13 members voted in favor of a brief 
draft resolution put forward by the United Arab Emirates, while Britain abstained. Only the U.S. voting against. The vote came after U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres made a rare move on Wednesday to formally warn the 15-member council of a global threat from the two-month-long war. And then in the special session called by a federal judge to redraw maps, Republicans found time to do some posturing and preening. Greg Bluestein reporting this four days ago in the AJC, the Georgia House adopting a resolution that condemned the deadly Hamas attack against Israel as a, quote, disgusting display of hatred and evil. The vote was 129 to 2 after about an hour-long debate. Several Democrats abstaining from the vote, and I think about 20 were absent. The lone Palestinian American in the Georgia House of Representatives, that would be Representative Rua Roman. I want you to hear her speech. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Colleagues, I rise before you today to explain why I will not be voting for or against this resolution. I want to be clear. My issue isn't with the Hamas condemnation. After all, I've been doing it since I was 15. Right. And no, that's not an exaggeration because it's a moment in my life I will never forget. You see, in high school, I was fed up with the kids on the school bus calling me a terrorist and pointing to my house, calling it the bomb lab. Wow. So I decided I'm going to take driver's ed. I was ready to become independent and start driving myself. Now, little did I know my biggest hurdle would be my parents who, and I quote, trusted me, just not the other drivers. But I digress. One day, my driver's ed teacher overheard a classmate mention I'm Palestinian. To be clear, I wasn't part of that conversation. He just simply overheard it. He called me into the hallway and proceeded to interrogate me to make sure that me and my family don't have any ties to Hamas, the terrorist group. I'll never forget how his question seemed so absurd and beyond comprehension to me that I literally laughed thinking he was joking. He wasn't. For context, I was 10 the first time somebody called me a terrorist. Wow. Those experiences robbed me of my childhood and my innocence. And instead of worrying about the typical things a teen worried about, I felt like now a deep sense of responsibility to not only represent all Muslims and all Palestinians, which is beyond absurd for a child, but also fight all the stereotypes about my community. But I quickly learned that my condemnation meant nothing. It did nothing. I'm not exaggerating. I agreed to a couple interviews at the beginning of October, where instead of talking about what I'm seeing in the Palestinian community, interviewers asked me if I condemned Hamas over and over and over again. I did, on the record, over and over and over again. And yet there were some people that still wrote in saying they really loved my perspective, they appreciated it, but why didn't I condemn Hamas? The interviewers were flabbergasted. All these experiences recently and in the past taught me, though, is that it doesn't matter. No matter how much my community, whether Muslim or Palestinian, condemned terrorism, no one listened. Imams from around the world signed and shared letters. Mosques and Muslim organizations would put out press release after press release every time something happened. Nobody cared because it didn't fit the narrative. But I'm telling you, something recently shifted in the past few weeks. And people are starting to realize that these absurd accusations and these absurd traps are simply not true. And I personally take so much solace in that. I want to be abundantly clear that my Palestinian Muslim community didn't support the policies leading to this violence. It wasn't us funding Hamas to prevent a Palestinian state or expanding settlement to the West Bank as an example. It was Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu who, as reported in 2019, helped facilitate those cash transfers to Hamas. Bingo. 
even without that important context, I probably would have still voted for this resolution. You know, we don't get everything we want around here. So what's the problem? I can assure you it's not because this resolution stands with our Jewish community. That shouldn't surprise you. My Palestinian grandfather, who grew up with Jewish and Christian neighbors, taught us there is no holy land without the Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Bingo. He is the reason I started interfaith work at 16 and the reason I've learned to find beauty in all faiths. In fact, I'm glad that's in here. Because to be clear, anti-Semitism is on the rise. And with it, the rise of Islamophobia and anti-Palestinian racism. And the same people targeting the Jewish community were the same people that threatened my life in 2016. I want to be abundantly clear about that. When I say our fates are intertwined and that we need to fight hate anywhere we see it together, it's not just a talking point. It's also a sincere belief that I hold. My issue with this resolution is two things. The first, this resolution conflates pro-Palestinian rallies and protests as pro-violence. This is and has been dangerous. We've seen the danger this has caused play out with the murder of six-year-old Wadia in Illinois and the shooting of three Palestinian students in Vermont, one of whom will never walk again. I've honestly been shocked at how pervasive this has been and the outright lies. To give you an example I personally witnessed, I went to a peaceful vigil to pray for all lives lost in Gaza, Israel, and the West Bank here in Atlanta. A group of about 30 pro-Israel counter-protesters showed up. They yelled at us saying they hoped we get beheaded, we deserve to be raped, and they were coming for our blood and more. We had peace marshals who bravely linked arms to keep them away from us, but at one point, they started swinging at us, hurting multiple people. It was harrowing, and I couldn't believe the vitriol. Now imagine my shock when I saw a blog post about that visual, saying that we attacked and surrounded them. It was a blatant lie. We had media there, we have video, people saw it, I was there. I mean, we've got plenty of witnesses. They approached us, they yelled at us. If we're going to engage on this issue of protest, then we should be accurate about it. The second concern that I simply cannot move on, and is the most important one, is that, and while I appreciate that there are so many here who have a lot of personal feelings about this, I cannot stand with Israel. Not the Israeli people, but Israel and its current government. I need you to understand that it is not hatred that places me in this position, it's my life experiences. My grandparents were forcibly expelled from their homes by Israel. Three of them have now died without ever seeing their homes again. Wow. And one day I will tell you that story, but today I want to tell you about all of our constituents from all around the state, including Atlanta, Alpharetta, Johns Creek, Augusta, Dalton, Duluth, Macon, Peachtree Corners, and that's just the ones that I know off the top of my head. A lot of you have said that this resolution has nothing to do with Palestinians, but it does. You see, over the past eight weeks, I have been receiving daily messages from my Palestinian community members sharing with me that they've lost 10, 20, 50 family members. Wow. In fact, I started pulling a list. Here's just four of them that gave me permission. Ghada Najjar has lost 68 family members. Hani Shawa has lost 31 community members, family members. Fayek Ismail has lost 12 family members. Professor Ghassan Rajib at Georgia Tech has lost over 100 family members. Oh my Just four people have had to over 200 family members killed in Israeli airstrikes. 
I simply cannot support what happened to them. I keep being told that this resolution has nothing to do with that, but come on now. It absolutely does. You want me to vote yes for bombing these innocent people? And I hear it. I hear y'all saying, you know, we're doing this to get rid of Hamas. But from my understanding and after talking to some folks who have served, what we are seeing is not urban warfare. This is not the way that you conduct military operations in densely populated areas. Exactly. This moment in our history is already painful enough, and I will not and cannot add any more to that pain. But I will also not oppose standing with community members who are hurting at this time. And this is why I will not vote for this. I will not engage on this. And I invite you all to join me because our constituents deserve better. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I yield the well. And so she didn't vote. She didn't vote for or against it. And in fact, about 30 of the chamber's 78 Democrats didn't vote for or against it either. Now, if Ruhr or Oman were in Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene would be drawing uh, up censures left and right to call her out. But fortunately for us at the state level, Ruhr Roman is in the Georgia House of Representatives and apparently off of Marjorie Taylor Greene's radar. Marjorie likes to preen for cameras. Of course, it helps her fundraise better than, I don't know, actually getting out and fundraising or doing the calls because uh, that's work. Why do that? And anyone running for office will tell you they don't like doing campaign calls. So I get it. But nonetheless, you have similar overtures really happening in these resolutions to begin with. Does it matter one iota? Seriously, does it matter one iota whether the Georgia House of Representatives takes a vote on supporting Israel against Hamas? I mean, I'm sorry. Who who gives a shit? Who, do, who does that benefit? Oh, good. Do you think Benjamin Netanyahu was going through the news a few days ago and goes, oh, well, thank goodness the Georgia House of Representatives voted that that emboldens us. Well, actually, you know what? It might, it might embolden him, but I, I still don't think he's checking for what the Georgia House of Representatives inside the Georgia General Assembly during a special session about redrawing maps for its state house and senate and congressional map i just don't think he's checking for that so again this is more about posturing and preening and also as greg bluestein rightly pointed out to show the differences the divide i like to call it the diversity of thought because we're a big tent party in the democratic party right that we're not going to be united on everything and we actually make room for differences Rua Roman points out a different perspective that a lot of folks don't stop to consider, but should, absolutely should. And in particular, those on the right who call themselves pro-life. If you're pro-life, shouldn't you as well be calling out this lack of urban warfare? When 1.9 million of Gaza's 2.2 million citizens have been displaced? When nearly a dozen and a half, nearly 16,000 was it? Citizens inside Gaza have been killed? And it totally, it just hurt my heart when I heard her talk about since the age of 10, Every time someone discovers she's Palestinian-American, 
she has to immediately decry her uh, her ambivalence, her disgust, her disdain for Hamas. I mean, do do us as like I'm a white person. I grew up born and raised in the state of Georgia. And every time somebody realizes I'm a Georgia native, I grew up, I was born in the state of Georgia, they don't ask me, well, do you decry the Ku Klux Klan? Sorry, where the f*** did that come from? <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to decry. I don't need to say that I deplore the Ku Klux Klan because I'm a white guy from the state of Georgia, born and raised. Do I? Do I have to do that? You know what? I already get a lot of flack because I have a cat named Herschel. I swear to God, every time I meet somebody and I tell them about my cats, you mean Herschel as in the dumb U.S. Senate candidate? Well, yeah, but I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan and I was more a fan of Herschel Walker, the running back. You see what I'm saying? It's just unfair. One more segment. The Ron Show back after this on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of The Ron Show heading into the weekend. Hopefully, you've got some fun stuff planned. For me, I don't have college football on the grid. And we wouldn't have had it anyway, whether Georgia had won or lost last weekend. So this is kind of one of those weekends where I can start, you know, doing some things that I haven't put a lot of time or stock into. I have a couple of projects that I'm kind of looking, some itches I want to scratch. Uh, I got a couple of new podcast projects that I want to work on. And uh, believe it or not, I have two like screenplays I want to write. Here's the thing. I need to learn how to write screenplays. Uh, I want to learn how to screenwrite. So I'm going to dive into that a little bit uh, over the next few weeks into the winter break. Uh, not that I'm taking a winter break, but you know what I mean, like so over, over the holiday season. Um, and I haven't made my New Year's plans yet. I did have someone invite me to go uh, with a group to Key West. I've not been to Key West more than like on a cruise four-hour, five-hour, six-hour stopover, you know, where you get, like, to go do an excursion or something like that and then get back on the boat. I've been to, I've been to, I've been to Key West twice for that. I've seen the chickens. I've seen the, 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 what is it, the, the, is it the four-toed, five-toed cats? Um, but, you know, a couple of drinks, a little wandering around, but uh, a little stop at the beach, but nothing more than that. And I haven't decided to do that, but I know one thing I won't be doing. One Atlanta holiday tradition will not help welcome people into the new year. City leaders announced the cancellation of the peach drop. After a hiatus, it was brought back to end 2022 as a way to celebrate Atlanta's role in hip-hop as the genre marked its 50th anniversary in 2023. But the peach drop debuted back in 1989 at Underground Atlanta, then was canceled in 2019 after the venue's struggles with crime and safety. And so Mayor Andre Dickens, when making that announcement, basically said, well, you know, we this hasn't been an every year thing anyway. It's been off and on since 2018. Well, that 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 doesn't that's not a that's not a case for not doing it. Uh, although, don't get me wrong, the safety concerns at the uh, underground Atlanta perpetual project, it just seems like it's always uh, something's always in the works there. And we've been waiting on this revitalization for what seems like decades now i went uh in fact i was at the peach drop for y2k i remember that there was nothing else to do around there then and there's not much else to do around there now although by the way um uh the owners of underground atlanta um uh it's called the the company's called lalani ventures 
Uh, they issued a press release saying that there's going to be a free fireworks show at midnight. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what the mayor might have been. Alluding. No, they meant fireworks, not pow pow. They meant boom boom. Uh, along with parties at um, uh, Pagal Theater and the Masquerade as well. So those are options. Honestly, this is kind of one of those things where, again, the the location is kind of not good right now. And until Underground Atlanta ever does become revitalized or becomes, I don't know, what does it need to become? Does it need to become uh, the battery without a baseball stadium? Yes, (laughs) in a word. But there's got to be something that draws people to Underground Atlanta like the Braves would be drawing crowds to the battery to bring that kind of business on the regular anyway. So, uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I hate to be pessimistic about any downtown development or any sort of uh, attractions, but it's blocks, many blocks, many, many blocks from Mercedes-Benz Stadium and State Farm Arena. So that's not really a thing. Maybe when the Gulch development is done, maybe they can kind of move the peach drop over there. Maybe, uh, you know, you hate to, to, to seed it to the battery because if you give it to the battery, they won't give it back. <laughs> They'll keep it because that that's where you can, you know, draw. And there will be stuff going on at the battery New Year's Eve too. Uh, I'm sure there are many. I, I, and honestly, <laughs> I'm at the age where I don't go out. I, I don't go out very often as it is. If I do, it's going to be a small neighborhood bar or club or something like that uh, or a small gathering. Uh, we have a we usually have a thing at our clubhouse here at the condo building I live in. That's kind of cool. And by the way, if uh, there are going to be fireworks from underground Atlanta, then I, I can see them from where I live. So, ta-da! Yeah, count me among those who's just kind of ambivalent to the whole thing. I, I definitely, I, I can see why there's uh, an acceptance amongst the Atlanta political leadership that you know doing this at underground just just not no just punt. Uh, wait and see if you get somewhere else that you can put a peach to drop. Uh, again, I don't, I don't understand why we don't do it at Centennial Park. You've got the, uh, the 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 big Ferris wheel. You could have concerts going on at the Tabernacle. You could have outdoor concerts going on at Centennial Park. Uh, I, there, to me, that's the, you've got the Margaritaville. Play. I mean, there's there's something there already, right? You could do that there. I don't know why we're not looking at that, but um, uh, maybe waiting on under. Don't wait on underground to develop. We've been waiting on that for too long. Um, speaking of waiting, cannot wait to have a conversation with one of the new Atlanta public school board members who is also an Atlanta public school employee. This is exciting stuff. And you're like, why is that exciting stuff? It's not every day. And I've always, I've wondered this since I was a school kid. It's not every day that you have a teacher, someone who's actually faculty in the school system on the school board. I like that. I think that's important. I think it's important to have parental representation, but I also think it's important to have faculty representation. In fact, I I would almost even argue it might not be a bad idea to have some sort of student representation. I mean, what better way to teach kids about their role in democracy than by letting them have some sort of participation? Not saying voter, but something. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Alfred Shivy Brooks is an Atlanta public school teacher and will be sworn in as a new Atlanta public school board member. How cool is this? I think this is very cool. I think this this is a great perspective to be represented on a school board. I I almost wish that this was by design, that there was a a, a seat that, oh, that'd be so cool, right? 
if all the faculty folks could run for a school board seat that would be available just for those who are teachers on a school board, that would be fantastic. When, I, when, I'm, in, when I'm emperor, that's what's going to happen. Uh, anyway, uh, Alfred, Chevy Brooks, and I have uh, made an appointment. We're going to have a conversation, and he is going to join the Ron Show on Monday. So I'm looking forward to that. Listen, we had a lot of cool folks on this week. I want to thank them all for joining the Ron Show. Let's see, we had uh, Matt Stiggle, and we had Andrew Heaton, Senator Elena Parent, freelance journalist Timothy Pratt, and more. You can revisit all of those past shows from this week if you'd like at ronshowatl.com or wherever you podcast. Back here Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Have yourself a great weekend. We'll see you then.